Well, as Nathan mentioned earlier, we will sing some more later in our service. We'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. But, but now let's turn to the book of Mark in your Bibles, the gospel according to Mark. Last week, Nathan kicked off our series for the fall, a study in the gospel according to Mark, which is really an exploration of the question, who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus? What we'll see today is that he's one with authority. Who is this Jesus? He's one with authority, unique authority, unparalleled authority. Mark set the stage for us already in what we saw last week in chapter 1. We saw last week that Jesus was commended by John the baptizer. He was commissioned by the heavenly father who said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We saw that the spirit descended upon Jesus, symbolizing no doubt empowerment and mission, anointing. He was then tempted and tried by Satan in the wilderness and yet remained faithful. In other words, he passed the test. And then Jesus began preaching, preaching a gospel. You see in verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel, an announcement, a good news announcement about a time that has come, uh, something that is now being fulfilled, about a kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is now here, it's at hand. We'll come back to that language in verse 15 a little bit later on, but Let's now look at six different scenes which follow verse 15 and really show us the implications of the kingdom being here in Jesus. The time being fulfilled now, the good news of Christ and his coming. Six different scenes. That might sound like a lot to cover in one Sunday, but one, remember that Mark moves very quickly. He loves that word immediately. And in the verses we'll look at today, we'll see him say immediately eight different times. Remember also, too, that, well, not remember, but let me point this out. These six scenes we'll look at today, they all go together because they all have to do with Jesus's authority, his unparalleled, unprecedented authority. In three of the scenes that we'll look at, it's even explicit, the word authority is there. And then the other scenes, the word authority isn't there, but the concept and idea is clearly there. It's all about authority. First, Jesus has authority over men. Authority over men. Look at verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat 
with the hired servants and followed him. It's an everyday sort of scene at the beginning, isn't it? It's an everyday, normal kind of scene. These are fishermen, and what are they doing? They're fishing. They're with dad, they're in the boat, they're mending nets. It's all very normal until Jesus shows up and abruptly says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It's an unthinkable demand, right? Stop what you're doing, leave your business, leave it to dad, come with me, follow me. In these days, teachers often had students who followed them, but those students initiated that relationship. They found a teacher they liked, they found a teaching they wanted to follow, they wanted to learn more, and so they initiated a mentor-mentee relationship with a teacher, and they followed him. But here, Jesus reverses that, doesn't he? He initiates, he pursues, he even demands, not invites, but demands, follow me. And astoundingly, they obey his call. And they obey it immediately. There it is, Mark uses it, verse 18. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. That's Simon and Andrew. And then James and John in verse 20. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father in the boat and followed him. Could you imagine being Zebedee, their father? I mean, you got two workers, you got other servants as well, but clearly this is a family business and your manager and general manager just walked out because some guy you've never seen before walked by and said, come on, let's go. And they go. And why would they go? What was so compelling about this man? Surely not his looks, surely not his dress, Surely not his car, surely not his promises. There are no promises involved here other than I will make you become fishers of men. It's unclear whether they would even have any concept of what that meant. We don't know what was so compelling. Well, we Christians kind of know, right? How did you come to Jesus? How did you start to follow him? Mm, some of it was logical and some of it you don't know. You don't know how you got there. But all of a sudden, he said, come, and you said, I will. It's that kind of thing. Jesus told them, I will make you fishers of men in verse 17. This was a concept that was talked about and even foretold in Jeremiah 16. Listen to this. Jeremiah 16, verse 14. It says, the Lord who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt... Now here's God speaking. I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. Catch what? Fish? No, 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 people, right? People of Israel. But not just the people of Israel. Verse 19, to you shall the nations come. So not only is Jesus getting these first disciples to follow him, he's announcing that Jeremiah 16 is happening. Those promises in Jeremiah 16 that God would begin a new exodus, like the old exodus where he took his people out and brought them in. He's doing it again. A new gathering is about to start, and it's not just for Israel, but for nations. And it starts with two guys. 
and then two other guys. Here we are today among millions and billions and who knows, maybe trillions, countless, that have come to believe and follow Jesus. That phrase, fishers of men, it's a phrase that most Christians are quite used to, right? We're familiar with it. We're not really bothered by it. I've never had to give uh, sort of an apologetic about that phrase, fishers of men. No one seems to be perplexed or worked up or, or bothered by it. We don't wince at it. But if you think about it, it's a very intrusive thought. Fishers of men. We don't mind being fishers. Fishing isn't so bad from the fisher's perspective, but how about the fish? Right? Jesus uses a fishing metaphor for real people. He's essentially saying that Jesus is hooking people and reeling them in. He's reeling them into another realm. For a fish, a real fish, that means dying outside the water. But in his sort of fishing, we're being reeled out of death and into life. Salvation. Yeah, he's going to use Peter and Andrew and many followers after them to do it. Just like Jeremiah 16 said, many fishers. But the authority to do it is his. And it's a multi-layered authority then, isn't it? It's a multi-layered authority over men. Jesus has the authority to call these four and then the, eventually the eight others. He not only calls them and all those first century disciples to himself, but he calls on them to call others to himself. And it goes on and on. We too are fishers of men. Every Christian is. Yes, the apostles were uniquely so, but every Christian is to make disciples. Remember Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority, notice that word, we're talking about authority this morning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It goes on and on and on. We make disciples. Jesus is still fishing today. In a sense, I'm fishing right now. I'm fishing for you right now if you haven't already been hooked and in Jesus' boat I'm telling you right now that Jesus says to you, follow me. Whatever you've got to leave behind, follow me. Whatever gets in the way, follow me. All authority in heaven and earth is Jesus's, and that guy, that God, says, follow me. He has authority over men. Secondly, he has authority over the curse, Look down in your Bibles with me, and you, you probably have headings in your Bibles. Not all Bibles do. These are added by an editor. They're handy for us to see stories, sections, that sort of thing. But from verse 21 to verse 34, my Bible has two headings. There really are two stories there, two scenes. But they're strongly related. They go together. You see, verse 21 to 28 is an encounter between Jesus and a demon, and then verse 29 to 34, there is a healing of illness, plus a summary from Mark about many demonic exorcisms Jesus did and many healings that he did. These go together. 
they're not exactly the same thing. Not all sicknesses are from demons. I'm not saying that, but they, they have the same root problem. And Jesus has authority over each of them, and, and they're smushed together here in this passage to show us that. Jesus has authority over the demonic and the disease. He has authority over, over Satan and sickness. So it's a big section, but let's just read these two scenes together. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region in Galilee. And then the next story. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Again, Jesus has authority over disease and demons, over sickness and Satan. And these things go together under the banner of the fall in Genesis, the curse that came there at the beginning of time. Because of an angelic rebellion, and then later a human rebellion against God, this world is cursed. This world is broken. We all know and see that in, a, in the physical realm. We all know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. All of our storytelling does this, right? It portrays something that's not what this is. It portrays a world that's better than our own. We see physical hurts. We see a cursed world. We feel the hard work of the curse. But it's also true in the spiritual realm. We're fallen people. We're sinful people. We're against God. We're born at enmity with him. We've joined a, a movement of cosmic rebellion, and we inherit that by birth. And we consciously and, and, and willingly continue in it until God's grace intervenes. But it's also true for a hidden realm that we can't see, a spiritual realm that is, well, it's an angelic realm. There's an unseen realm where Satan is real, where demons are real. It does us no good to explain away this man here, this demonic man, as having some sort of mental illness. The Bible says it's an unclean spirit, and 
That means demon, and we should call it that and believe it to be such. See, all this, though, the physical realm that's broken, the spiritual heart that, that doesn't work or beat after God, and the hidden realm where Satan is antagonistic and demons are real, all of that goes back to the beginning of creation. All of it flows from an angelic rebellion and that first human sin in Genesis 3. But even as early as Genesis 3, God was promising Redemption to come. Redemption. God was promising a solution. Genesis 3.15 is often called the first gospel. The first gospel of the Bible. There it says that through the seed of the woman, one day the serpent or Satan would be crushed. Well, Jesus is that seed of Genesis 3. And the demons know it. The demons clearly know it. They know it here in Mark 1. The demon says, verse 24, have you come to destroy us? Like, is it time? We have to go now? You let us go for a while there. Is it, is it time's up? We have to go? And they confess. I know who you are. Or he confesses. I know who you are. The Holy One of God, the Holy One. That's a capital T, the. That's a capital H, that's a capital O, one. The Holy One of God. In other words, the one, the Messiah, the promised one, the seed, Abraham's seed, the ruler of Judah, David's greater son, the eternal one, the suffering servant, the one. And yes, he came to bring a kingdom and to overtake a kingdom. To bring in God's kingdom means to overtake Satan's domain. In Luke 11, Jesus says, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See the connection between casting out demons and the kingdom coming. In Hebrews 2, we're told that Jesus came that through death, through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And in 1 John 3, we're told that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus' interaction with this demon here isn't just an exorcism like you've seen in movies. It's proof of a time that was promised, an era, a movement that's taking place. It's the beginning of a fulfillment of promises from millennia ago. And the same with Jesus' healings. Jesus' healings don't just show us that he's kind and compassionate. Though that's true. And you can't overlook that. Notice in verse 31, he took her by the hand and he lifted her up. That's compassionate. That's gentle. There's something to see there. Something very important about our Jesus in the way he deals with people here. But his healings, more than just showing his compassion, show us the fulfillment of those promises. Like those in the prophets that one day lepers would walk, blind would see, those deaf would hear, those mute would speak. Now, all that doesn't come at once. 
Not everyone's healed. Not every demon is gone. So we say there are, there are two stages to Christ's kingdom. There's a now and a not yet. A now that came 2,000 years or more ago when Jesus first came, and a not yet, more to come when he comes again. Someday, there will be no more sickness, no more death, no more pain, no more threat, no more tears. That's how our Bibles end, right? A new heaven in a new earth. Our Bibles end with the story of Satan and all his minion being thrown into the, bit, the abyss forever and ever. That's coming, it's sure, but it hasn't happened yet. And yet it began to happen. It began to happen with the first coming of Jesus over 2,000 years ago. And so these healings and these exorcisms are foreshadows of what's to come. In Jesus, God is undoing the curse that our sin has wrought and deserved. And he's the only one that has authority to undo this curse. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him, verse 27 says. Now Christian, isn't one implication of this that we don't need to be afraid of sickness or Satan? We don't need to be afraid of disease, death, or demons. It doesn't mean they won't happen to us. It doesn't mean we won't encounter them. It means they finally can't take us, harm us, overtake us, ruin us. Even if this body is destroyed, we have a living, a temple from God, not made with hands, in the heavenly places, right? What can men do to me? We don't, need to, we don't need to fear sickness or Satan, disease or demons, because Jesus has authority over the curse. Thirdly, he has authority to preach. He has authority to preach. We already saw that in the previous section. Right in verse 21, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Well, he taught as one who had authority and not like the scribes. The culture of teaching in Jesus' time was religious leaders who would quote the various views. Maybe you've heard preaching like that even today, where it's, here are the four views on this one verse. Here are the four views on this doctrine, and then you move on, and that's it, and well, that's very different than preaching with authority. And Jesus preaches not just with authority because he doesn't, he doesn't dilly-dally. He's not willy-nilly. He doesn't do the four views kind of teaching. Jesus preaches with authority because of who he is. Because he is greater than the prophets of old. He is the word of God in the flesh. And so there's a primacy, we could say, about his preaching ministry. You see, look at verse 35, this next section. And arising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out into a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out." 
that I may preach there. Let's go to the next towns, not so I can heal so much, not so much so that I can fight off a demon there, cast him out, that I might preach. There's a primacy to Jesus' preaching ministry. The miracles validate the word, but the word is what's central. But what did he preach? What did he teach? What was the content? Well, Mark doesn't tell us explicitly other than what he already told us in verse 15. Remember, verse 14 was Jesus proclaiming the gospel of God in verse 15, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we've got gospel. We've got a time being referred to here. We've got fulfillment. There was a waiting period apparently and now that waiting period is over. And the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is is now, it's beginning. When we Christians usually refer to the gospel, what we mean is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins received through faith. And we're not wrong to think that. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, there Paul says, the gospel I preached to you and you received is this, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. But as Nathan pointed out last week, gospel in Mark 1, it's in verse 1 and in verse 15, Gospel in Mark 1 sounds more like an announcement of a time, a fulfillment, a thing, an era, a kingdom. Which is it? Well, it's both. It's both, isn't it? We can think of the gospel as both panoramic and personal. The gospel is panoramic in that it is a kingdom, it's an era, it's a realm. It's sometimes worded as a description of what it's like to be in it. But the gospel must also be personal. Each of us has to enter into it. The gospel is not just the announcement that a party exists, but directions on how to get there. Do you get it? It's not just a parade going by. Hey, there's a parade. But there are steps involved to get in it. And we get there in the kingdom through the life and death and resurrection of Christ received through faith. That's where the story's going. Mark knows how his story ends. Believe it or not, he wrote the book after Jesus died. He began the beginning of his book knowing how it ends. And all throughout, he's giving us these winks. Ding! He's giving us a little wink about the cross and resurrection. We're people who know the story already. This wasn't just written for unbelievers who have never heard anything about Jesus. This was also written for Christians and their encouragement. And so every exorcism is a wink. Ding. It's a wink in that direction of Satan's defeat, of him conquering all principalities and powers and authorities, him putting all of his enemies under his feet. Every healing is a wink. I won't do it again. 
Every healing is a wink in the direction of the ultimate healing that's to come. First, spiritually, through the cross and resurrection, Jesus can heal. Are you kidding? He can get over death. He can give life to us spiritually. Every healing is a wink in that direction. And every mention of the word gospel is also not just an announcement that a kingdom is here somewhere or that, or that someone has come or we're now in a different age than we used to be. But it's also a wink toward the glorious means by which we enter that kingdom. So in light of that, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Give up on self. Give up on a system of self-salvation. Give up on whatever means you had of either ignoring God or resisting God or denying your sin or covering your sin. That's repentance. And believe, trust, apprehend, receive. That's what it means to believe, to have faith. Jesus is not a figure who simply needs to be interpreted from the safe distance of 2,000 years away, like any historical figure. Was he good or was he bad? I don't know. Let's look and we'll test him. No, no, no. He's not 2,000 years away, even though this stuff happened 2,000 years. The kingdom is here. He, the king is now. The king is on his throne. He must be reckoned with. And so this command to repent and believe is not just an invitation, it's a command. Jesus preaches with all authority like no preacher has ever preached, like no prophet has ever prophesied. He's the word made flesh. Fourthly, Jesus has authority over the law. The law. You see, look at verse 40. It looks at first, like it's not about the law, but then we'll see it is. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now stop there. Why is this about the law? Well, notice those two phrases that maybe aren't shocking to us, but would have been utterly shocking to Mark's Jewish readers or anyone observing this story, this scene in the first century. Verse 40, a leper came to him. That should be shocking to Jewish readers. And then verse 41, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. You see, the Old Testament law prohibited both of these. Based on Leviticus 13 and 14, two giant chapters, 116 verses on diagnosing leprosy and what to do with lepers. Based on Leviticus 13 and 14, lepers were to, to be banished from the community. Not just for health and safety reasons, but because they were considered ceremonially unclean, unable to worship God with the rest of his people, unfit. 
In Leviticus 13 and 14, there the lepers are also told that when, when they, or if they, happen upon other people, they should say, they should cry out, it says, unclean, unclean. And they can't cover up any sores. They can't cover up anything that's wrong. They, they can't wear nice clothes to try to hide the fact that they have leprosy. They have to show their leprosy and they have to claim their rep- leprosy. They were saying, don't touch me, don't bump into me, I'm, I'm a leper. And if you were touched by a leper in those days, if you even bumped into one accidentally, you not only might get leprosy, but you too were immediately ceremonially unclean. It had the same effect as touching a corpse. And no surprise then that they viewed lepers in those days basically as walking dead. So a leper came to him is shocking, it's scandalous, it's law-breaking. He's not supposed to do this. But it defies the law, not in outright rebellion, but in glorious faith. If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus was moved with pity by this. He was moved with pity, not rage. Not, not with fear, not with paranoia, not with judgment. He was moved with pity. And even more shocking than that, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was clean. Jesus could have healed this guy any way he wanted to. A lot of times Jesus just speaks a healing into existence. Uh, sometimes Jesus doesn't even speak it, doesn't touch, doesn't do anything, and the person is healed. Each kind of healing, I mean, at one point he spits on his fingers and puts them in a guy's ears. It's kind of funny, right? The, the time he rubs mud in a guy's eyes and says, all right, now go wash them. Jesus heals a lot of different ways, and each one kind of communicates something unique. Touching this leper shows compassion, It identifies Jesus with this man and his leprosy. It also shows Jesus' power. With anyone else coming in contact with this leper, his uncleanness, the leper's uncleanness, would then be transferred to the person who was clean before, but now is unclean. With Jesus, it goes in the other direction. He's that powerful in his cleansing power. Jesus doesn't get leprosy or uncleanness, but his cleanness instead cleans the leper and heals him. And it also shows Jesus' authority over the law because, because this goes against parts of Leviticus 13 and 14, we're reminded that something new has come in Jesus. Jesus has done away with Moses. Jesus has done away with the Levitical law. He's a new priest He brings a new temple, new sacrifice, not ceremonies, but true cleansing. Something better is breaking forth now. The Old Testament law was incapable of healing. That's why you contained them. You can't do anything with them. No one could fix them. No priest could heal them. The Old Testament law simply taught containment. But Jesus brings true healing. There's still a few more verses in this scene that we haven't read yet. Look at verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him, 
and sent him away at once, that is the now clean leper. He said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing, what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But the man, the former leper, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now first, there are two problems here. First, why does Jesus say, show yourself to the priest and do what Moses said to do for those former lepers? I mean, Jesus has just sort of balled up Moses and put him aside, and then Jesus says, do what Moses said to do. Go show yourself to the priest. Well, this something new that Jesus is bringing, something better that's breaking forth, it's in transition at this point, isn't it? And because of that, this is the only way that this man can be restored to his community. The priest had to sign off on his now purity, his lack of leprosy. Without it, without the certificate, let's say, you don't play ball. You're not in the community. You don't get to, you don't get to do any reindeer games, right? You, you, need, you need something that says, let me back in, guys. Look, it's good. It's not just makeup. It's not just a you know, new formula I'm using on my face to exfoliate. Show yourself to the priest. It's part of his restoration to his friends and family. It's loving. It's good. But what's with all the hush-hush stuff? Hush-hush, Jesus keeps saying. This is the third time now, just in chapter 1, that Jesus has said, Be quiet. Don't tell anyone. Whatever you do, don't tell anyone. It was back in verse 24, 25, rather. He said to the demon, be silent. In verse 34, it says he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. What is this? In fact, it's all over Mark, not just in chapter 1. It's what some scholars have called the messianic secret. The messianic secret. Even after his transfiguration in chapter 9 of Mark, the disciples see it, at least three of them do, and Jesus tells them, tell no one what you have seen until after the resurrection. Why? I mean, doesn't Jesus want to be famous and spread the news? And he's a preacher, right? Doesn't he want his name to be known and his identity to be revealed and for that to be as broad as possible? Well, quickly, there are several reasons why Jesus does this hush-hush thing with his identity. The first is that he's trying to keep wraps on his identity because the cross is inevitably coming, but it must come at the right time. It can't come too soon. He has a plan. We know in his plan, for at least three years, Jesus traveled about preaching and healing, and then the trial and crucifixion and resurrection. But if Jesus' kingship or his messiahship become too public too quickly, then the cross will become, will come too quickly as well. A second reason why Jesus does this hush-hush thing is that it proves that Jesus wasn't, at the end of the story, put to death because he was some sort of political revolutionary. He wasn't an insurrectionist or a propagandist. There has to be another explanation for why he was so hated 
and so opposed and eventually crucified by, by Romans and Jews. And it wasn't because he was a propagandist. It wasn't because he kept saying, Messiah, 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 I'm the king, I'm the king, I'm the king. He was actually quite quiet about it. Third, the crowds are often a hindrance for true ministry in the book of Mark. The crowd is often not a very good thing in the book of Mark. We'll see that especially in chapter 3, but even in chapter 1, the crowds are amazed and Jesus' fame spread, but Jesus seems pretty disinterested in all that. He isn't interested in quick decisions and big numbers. He wants true, true followers. And lastly, Jesus does this hush-hush thing because, well, you notice what the man did, the leper? He was told, be quiet, and he wasn't. The fact that almost no one, including demons, obeys Jesus' command to tell no one reminds us that he is irrepressible. His fame is irrepressible, right? He's too glorious to be hidden, too glorious to be contained. He cleanses the leper by touching him and then tells that leper, don't tell anyone. Could you imagine being that cleansed leper? You look great. What happened? Well, gee. Some guy. What do you say? I mean, we kind of can't blame the leper for going, I, I'm not supposed to tell anyone. They say, come on, you can tell me. I won't tell anyone. He goes, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He healed me. He healed me. He's the one. He's the king. Hmm. Lastly, Jesus has authority to forgive. We have one more scene to look at into chapter two now. Jesus has authority to forgive. Let's read it. The first 12 verses. What a story it is. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What a scene. What desperation. What faith. What friends. 
four friends with their paralyzed buddy. Get him to Jesus. We got to get him to Jesus. The house is packed. People are jamming the windows and the doors. They're around the outside of the house. You can't go in. We got to go up. This would have been a thatch roof, so you could pull it apart. And it's not exactly property damage because they made a new one every year. And so they open up the roof, they lower him in gently on top of the crowd. And then Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. Didn't he see the man was paralyzed? Didn't he know what they wanted? Well, that should tell us what our greatest need is. This man's greatest need, though paralyzed, was his sin. That's his greatest problem. His greatest need was forgiveness. Jesus knows our needs better than we do. You know how he knows? He's God. And he not only knows our greatest need and has compassion on it, but he can fix it. He can forgive. And he forgives in a way that only God himself can forgive. The scribes are right. This is either God saying this or a man who's blaspheming, which the law calls for a stoning. He's God. And further proof that Jesus is God, he not only forgives this man's sin, he knows people's thoughts. He knows what the religious leaders were thinking. And then he says, which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up with your bed and walk? You see, anyone can say your sins are forgiven, I can say that to you. I don't know for sure if it's true. Jesus is saying that's easier in one sense to say your sins are forgiven because no one can see it. But so you know this guy's sin is actually forgiven, let me show you something you can see. Healing. Rise up. Take your bed and walk. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. He heals to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. And both the healing and the forgiveness indicate to us that he is God in the flesh. And so the man, just like Jesus commanded, immediately he rose and picked up his bed and went out. What a day this paralyzed man had. He was hoping for legs that walked at the end of the day. He has that. And more important, his heart has been cleansed from the guilt and punishment and worry of sin. He's cleansed, forgiven. But, but, but how? How is he forgiven? How does Jesus just forgive his sins like that? And you say, well, he's God. You told me that, Ryan. But how does God forgive sins? Does he just wave them away? Do they just go away? Can he just erase it with a giant pink eraser? No. Only in the substitute payment 
of Jesus dying in our place, can we be free? He took our death that we might have life. He took our punishment that we might go free. He bore our pain so that we might have saving life and joy. Again, John, Mark, no doubt, has a little wink here in mind, doesn't he? We who know about the forgiveness that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus know that Jesus doesn't just with our sin. He doesn't pink eraser it away. It would be unjust, but he died in our place. He has the authority to forgive sins in view of what's to come for this man here in Mark chapter two. It's in view of the cross. For us, he has the authority to forgive our sins because he has laid down his life for us. In fact, he says he has the authority That word comes up again. He has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up. In John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Friend, the time has come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is now. The king has come. The gospel has come to us we repent and believe that satan is being crushed right now illness doesn't hold us captive god has spoken to us in his son we have no reason to doubt or fear we know what he's going to do not in small details but the big ones yes the important ones yes the cleansing of our souls has come And the cleansing of our whole beings and the cleansing of a whole earth and world is on the horizon. 